Hi, I'm Ron Bullis, the founder and president of LifeWorks Advisors, and this is The Future of Advice. Everybody knows that there's challenges in the wealth management industry, that technology is rapidly evolving, that global pandemics like the coronavirus can completely shift our business models in the blink of an eye. We also know that the pace and the rate of change that we experience is exponentially increasing. So instead of looking in the rear view mirror and trying to ask the question of how did we get where we're at or what did we do to be successful, in this series I sit down with some of the foremost leaders in the wealth management space, the technology realm, and future thinkers about what needs to happen in order for advisors and firms to deliver the future of advice to their clients. Hello friends, clients, and fellow financial advisors. My name is Ron Bullis, and I'm the president and CEO of LifeWorks Advisors, and also the person who created the Future of Advice podcast. I am really excited to get to share this conversation uh, with an industry leader, somebody that has held CTO positions at numerous large firms, and currently now runs a boutique consulting firm, helping advisors, mid-sized RAs, and large financial firms think about how to balance high tech and high human touch. His perspective and experience comes from a long history of innovations and transformative technical projects at major financial institutions. His firm also manages the Wealth Tech Innovation Board, a confidential think tank comprised of over 70 top wealth management CTOs, COOs, and innovation executives. I am certain you're gonna enjoy this conversation and for the financial advisors and people running small RIAs, one of the most important things for us to think about is how we are going to build the appropriate tech stack so we can maintain really, really good relationships with our clients, have a high degree of touch, and at the same time keep up with robo-advisors and tech platforms that are trying to get away from the high you know, human touch experience. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome my guest today on the Future of Advice podcast, Doug Fritz of F2 Strategies. Welcome. Hey, Ron. Yes, good to, good to be here. Thanks for having me. I am very excited to have this conversation. You and I, uh, you were leading a panel for the Wealthies, I think, a um, couple of weeks back, and we were just having a really interesting conversation with a couple of other executives in the space about technology, and I think your perspective on not just the industry, but you know, technology that firms and advisors need to be thinking about is, is really unique. So I've been looking forward to this uh, conversation now for a few weeks. So Thank you. That was fun. Yeah. So you're based in uh, hopefully warm, sunny California, correct? It's Northern California, which is uh, as an East Coast transplant, I got duped like a lot of people thinking California is always <laughs> warm and just it's like never warm in Northern California. But yeah, I live in Santa Cruz, about two blocks okay. off the beach here from Monterey Bay. Awesome. Uh, as I look out my window here, uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, it's five degrees. We've got about two and a half feet of snow, thankfully some sunshine. Um, so uh, nice to be ni nice to be connecting uh, with you. All right, so for those of you that uh, are watching who might not be familiar with Doug and his company, F2 Strategy, Doug, why don't you just give us uh, a really brief background um, with you know who you are, how you came to found F2. I think it's a really interesting story and then we'll jump into some additional questions. Cool, yeah, I'd love to. Um... Yeah, you know, F2, uh, we're about 10 people now, uh, 10 full-time folks, uh, you know, mid, I would call us a boutique mid-size, like you said, mid-size uh, wealth management technology strategy firm. Uh, we do basically three things. One you mentioned is the tech board. It's just research. It's just finding out what the best firms in the country are doing and then helping other firms learn from other people's mistakes. It's 
And we joke that, uh, <laughs> that innovation is moving so fast now that if we all had to learn the hard way, the whole industry wouldn't move forward. And so um, being able to connect firms with, with each other and learn from each other's uh, mistakes and, and, less, and, and positive things as well um, helps us all move forward faster. And uh, that's, that's one thing. The other two things we do are help mid-sized wealth firms uh, with their technology strategy. And then the last thing we do is uh, for, for large RIAs, usually about a billion, about 15, 12 to 15 billion, we are their CTO. And so we've we built a product called Octo Outsource CTO, it's a catchy name. And we come in and we manage everything on a retained basis. So we're there as their CTO. So a team of experts oh. um, in place of what would otherwise be a CTO. And a lot of firms just can't hire um, a CTO don't have the budget for it. And how we got started, like mm-hmm. uh, maybe that's the more interesting piece. It, I didn't, I was, as a former CTO, so I was a CTO at, at First Republic Wealth Management, and then I ran the advisor technology strategy for the private bank at Wells before that. And I loved consultants, it was good to have consultants, but I always felt like I wasn't really getting what I paid for. And the reason was that most consulting firms are great at coming and giving you advice, paper, you know, asking you questions, repeating back, and then they kind of go away. You, you don't you don't hire them for their understanding of how to get to that end. You get you hire them for telling you what to do. And there was a, a big chunk of the value that was lost, which was okay. Tell me what to do, but tell me maybe how I should do it. And so yeah. our idea was: can you get a bunch of former wealth tech executive CTOs that will help other firms understand how to get there, not just what to do, but also how to how to do it. And that's been that's been successful five years in that's been it's been our business yeah i mean i think about you know as being the you know the founder of a small ra as well and, and rapidly growing trying to be you know very tech forward um you know we've spent i don't even want to think about how many thousands maybe hundred thousand dollars on different software platforms right that that look really great and we're like oh this is going to be excellent and because we don't have the background as being a cto or thinking about all the implications of you know, adding another technology to our tech stack, so to speak, uh, you know, we get a few months in and realize this is a pretty cool software, but this is going to be 10 times more work than we thought to actually implement it, or it doesn't play well with our other software. And then we're like, how long is our contract? Two years, (laughs) Uh, uh, that kind of thing. Um, Before we jump into some questions, one of the things, and I, I mentioned this as I just kind of talked in your intro that I think is maybe one of the best taglines I've seen on a, a website. And, and by tagline, I don't mean to diminish its value because I think it's, a, it's probably the statement that I think is going to win the future for advisors. So I want to just ask you where, where you came up with your tagline that's on your website, where you say, where high touch meets high tech, right? Talk to me a little bit about how you, how you came to that because I think the, the implications behind a statement like that are really profound, especially for, you know, advisors running RIAs like myself, thinking about how we balance this. So the origin story of the concept comes from working uh, in and actually helping to automate and to and to allow for rapid scale and growth First Republic Wealth Management, which uh, just, just grown tremendously quickly, but had an incredibly high touch, high net promoter score client satisfaction number, like top, top, top in the industry. Mm. And those are typically conflicting concepts. How do you automate yeah. to scale, but take along this, the great feels, the great emotions and the experience and expectation and delivery? How do you, how do, you do those together? They almost almost are in conflict with one another. Um, and we see this across large firms that, that 
almost get mired into what they're like, how they're doing it. And they forget the clients or small firms that so focus on the clients that they can't automate that you bring in tech solutions and say, ah, I can't do that. Every client's a snowflake. Surely they're here because they think they're a snowflake. How do you, how do you bring <laughs> yeah. these things together? And, uh, and we've come up with through our own experience in, 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 in the industry, a way to do that. And it, it really is not to give too many secrets away on the, on the, on the video call, but it is about like focusing on the, specific events along the way in that client journey that you want to almost machine to excellence. And you can think about things like onboarding automation. I and mean, it's something you guys do a great job of. Um, that's a 90 day period where the, the prospect to client is formalizing how they're going to think about you for years, right? That's the first impression concept. Mm -hmm. um, and if you can machine great experiences along the way, like getting all the right data up front, not having to go back and ask them the same data three months later, mm -hmm. right? Like making sure the assets that you're going to bring on board, you can actually yeah. bring on board at your custodian and not go tell them a month later, oh, you got to call the advisor you just fired and get them yeah. to sell those assets. Well, I don't want to call that advisor. <laughs> I just broke their heart by leaving. You're going to have to go back and yeah. talk to that person. Yeah. I have um, to redo so, the pain. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And you want to machine yeah. those things. And so you're machining, not just in the initial part of the relationship, it's through the entire thing. It's planning and the integration of planning data into the experience. It's the digital experience, because more and more, especially with COVID, right? Like we're our our face to face is like phone to face. And how do I create yeah. a digital experience which amplifies who we are and creates a high touch but digital experience? And so it's it's just it requires a little different thinking. And um it was unique enough in terms of our approach and I think our experience that we, we end up trademarking it, like where high touch meets high tech, we get you know trademarked it. So um and it's a real it's a big thing about how we think about technology and the client experience. It's always about what we want that feel to be at the end. And we work backwards in technology land. Yeah, no, and that's, uh, it's an interesting thing because I, I know for myself as a financial advisor, uh, I had no background in technology, right? And so probably like, you know, a kid in a, you know, a toy shop, right? Start looking around at shiny objects, especially once I created my firm, I was like, oh, I was never able to use that software, that software, that software, that software, that software. And next thing you know, I have 20 different, you know, pieces of software that we're trying to amalgamate together. Um, and I talk to advisors, especially breakaways that have started their own firms. And this seems to be a really common, um, common thing that happens. And I know, you know, Michael Kitts uh, puts out a slide every year with all of the smorgasbord of technology that's available. Uh, and, and I'll get to a question later on about maybe how to think about choosing the right ones. But uh, one of the things that we realized pretty quickly along the way was we wanted to be a high touch firm, but we were sometimes spending more time managing the software we put in place. And we were just kind of working now double hard, you know, double time running the software and then still trying to be high touch. And I think this is the, the challenge that firms are going to have to solve in order to win the future is how to, how to have a meaningful relationship with a client and be able to scale and then adjust to, you know, a pandemic like this, right? I mean, this has uh, kind of been the the, uh, the, the fire for all of us, right? To see if we could continue to deliver on our promises to our clients while sitting in our home offices or, you know, not traveling to see them anymore, things like that. So, yep. yeah. And those promises are going to evolve because our clients are evolving through this too, right? Yeah. It's a tough mm -hmm. place to be. Shifting gears just a little bit. One of the questions that I wanted to ask you within the last couple of weeks, we've had this, you know, this GameStop, Robinhood, you know, uh, versus the hedge funds, right? The, 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 the Robinhood army of day traders versus the hedge funds. 
something I talk with our clients about, and I've had a few conversations on the Future Advice podcast about this democratization of finance, right? The, the idea that anybody with a smartphone and an internet connection can almost instantly buy and sell options and securities and cryptocurrency and stocks and private equity even. And, and technology moves faster sometimes in what industries and regulations and other systems keep up with. Can you share with us just a little bit about how you're thinking about this uh, and, and talking to your clients, right? What are the implications for firms, for financial advisors in a world now where pretty much anybody can buy and sell and access every market that I can as an advisor and potentially there becomes dislocations like we saw with you know the Reddit forum where everybody kind of jumped on the same side of the trade and put a couple of black eyes and a few hedge funds. Nobody should lose tears over that one. Um, but talk to us, talk to me a little about your kind of vantage point on this democratization of finance and its impacts on advisors and firms. So, I, you know, I think like a lot of people in the industry, especially from the technology meets advice, you know, uh, part of the Venn diagram that's just that just that just connected. Um, like my parents actually have some sense of what I do now. It's sort of like every once every couple <laughs> of years, like someone realizes like, oh, there's this technology thing meeting the investments world. Um, and it's fascinating. And that's sort of where we're clearly where, where we live. Um, you know, I think that the democratization of capability and democratization of access to to doing things um, is is on one side terrifying because your your ability to go um, establish a, a, um, a, a margin account and start trading options or you're taking your your, your pulling out of your 401k and you're dumping stuff into what seems like a great idea just because you have access to that certainly doesn't mean that it's the right thing for you um, and I think there's a, a, a personality that's just going to naturally gravitate towards that um, and you know does that mean that we're going to our, our standard fee-based advice planning kind of client is going to get swayed into that avenue probably not brought in to, to being able to do those things, but they will come back to someone that's managing their money and say, I'm, I'm on this free system that's able to aggregate your trades and my portfolio with you. And it's giving me insights that I can't get from you. That's, that's a problem for you. I still trust you. I still want you to manage my portfolio and to sort of establish the right asset allocation to do the right thing. Luckily in the market, at least in, in, in the US, there is this sense that you can't beat the market. You can't beat, you know, you can't beat the S and P. And luckily, I think for those of us that are more planning based, um, that's a pretty well known, like well trodden road now. Um, and so even people can can you know put some play money into the market. Um, they still fundamentally know that that the the large indices and tracking indices is probably the way to go as opposed to one off bets. But that part about they're able to get more data outside than from you that becomes a problem because mm -hmm. now you're left as an advisor clients not going to pay you anymore for that information um but they're asking for it from you and and if you're we catch a lot of clients like this we actually probably make a lot of clients because of this where clients are continuing to ask for more and some of them are getting so frustrated are going are they going to mm -hmm. uh robin hood and e-trade and and uh and vanguard maybe but more often they're, they're going to go to a little bit more tech advanced ria um mm -hmm. down the street that's got something better and uh, able to beat your performance or match your performance, but a better experience. We're starting to see more of that. So I don't think it's gonna pull people completely into the digital side, but it's definitely up in the ante for, for RIA. Yeah, so that's interesting. And I'm gonna have you expound on that a little bit more because I think that the 
there's a tendency for advisors and firms, and I talk from around the country, and, and I don't have the same vantage point you do, but to kind of still hang their hat on their investment strategies or you know, their, their approach to investing or, or something like this, and maybe even their track record if they've been along, around a long time. And what I'm hearing you say is that clients are saying, hey, we want some more relevant information and more expedient information and better tools to communicate and, and understand the market. And so we're not ready to leave having a human financial advisor and go do it on our own. We're just going to go find a more tech forward RIA and switch to that. That's what, one of the things you guys are seeing. Very much so. And and there's there's certain nuances how to do it back to the mm-hmm. shiny object syndrome, right? That you can imagine mm-hmm. someone says, oh my gosh, I got four clients now on, on mm-hmm. a robo-advisor. They can get more information than I'm providing them on my, maybe it's I'm using the Schwab website or the Fidelity yeah. website for them, right? And they can see more through this free app. Um, what do I do? And they just kind of knee jerk at another shiny object. And that's, to your point, that's almost always a bad idea. Um, we talk a lot about a concept of a moat as an advisory firm you, you whether you know it or not you have a moat around your firm and it's you know why did clients come and why do your employees come to work with you um and if you don't know your moat and a lot of people just don't know what their moat is like i don't know why i'm different i'm just i got a catchy name and i you know i'm nice to people well maybe that's why your clients are there but probably there's some other reason about you and your firm that brings folks in um even when clients have you know have issues or they want more don't just um shiny object it out you need to think about how what you're doing with technology and experience amplify and expand that mode and that's a another big thing we talk to folks about just whatever you're going to spend money on technology land make sure it's it's creating a better version of yourself not a different version of yourself um we see a lot of firms get in trouble trying to be everything to everybody it almost never works yeah i could i could see that um especially as it relates to the technology right you adopt maybe a piece of technology to solve a handful of clients needs that are asking for something and now you're forced to support it and you know and things like that i think it's interesting that you mentioned that not a lot of firms or or in your experience you've seen a lot of them that don't actually know how to articulate what makes them different and unique right um, and I still have been running into this too, where they might say something like, well, I, you know, we really have the best personalized service or, you know, we're, we're the most responsive or, you know, these things. And I think to myself, like, those are all good attributes, but everybody says that now, like nobody's out there saying, yeah, we have really terrible customer service and we only call you three times a year, right? Like everybody's promising those things. And, uh, I think there's a little bit of a, an identity crisis in our industry right now. Um, you know, the, the Ernst & Young study, uh, the last one they did, the 2019 Global Wealth Management Report, their study found that 80% of people wanted more personalized advice and planning. And half of the consumers were waiting on the sidelines, right? Um, because there still seems to be this disconnect between, are we an investment firm? Are we money managers? Is that how we are driving value for our clients? Or is it planning only? And, and can you do both at the same time? And then I imagine if uh, somebody's at an insurance company or maybe a you know a, a large BD or something where they have proprietary products, they've got requirements there to sell, right? And and so I just see a little bit of a identity crisis for the industry where it seems like there's a large chunk that still hang their hat on. Here's how we manage money and we do it better than everybody else, whether it's quantitative or fundamental or factor investing. And then you have some now that are out there saying like we're the best planners in the world, right? Um, so when you're working with clients, you're essentially taking them back to that and saying, what makes you different? What builds your moat? Why are your clients with you? And then does your technology reinforce that? That's exactly it. And if you can't say why the predominant technology focus is going to 
create a better version of yourself and sort of amplify mm -hmm. and expand that mode, we need to go back to what the heck that mode is because you can, you can see how, especially smaller firms, well, you can mm -hmm. spend a ton of money, barely be mediocre at everything. And yeah. just your clients yeah. are gonna be like, well, I really want the planning. There's a great planning shop down the road that has great technology. That's what I want. I'm gonna go over there because you're just kind of thrashing versus mm -hmm. other firms. And this is the really, I, I, have, a, I have a lot of uh, empathy for this situation because to, to say, what are we great at? by definition has to say, what are we gonna be okay just being mediocre? Maybe even like mm. not great at. That's really hard. And to say, yeah. what type of a client are we gonna go after says, we're gonna be okay with a smaller client or a larger client or a, a, like a predominantly male dominated sort of client as opposed to a female. Mm -hmm. Like we have to, when we pick our client that we wanna go after and the types of attributes they're looking for, it excludes a lot of others. That's terrifying. And I try to explain to folks where, you know, if you've got nine, 10, 10 prospects are coming in the door and you're mediocre at everything. You get one and you had a great day, right? Like one out of 10% close rate on, on cold prospects. Fantastic. Right. Yeah. But if you were focused on an area, maybe it was like Elevest, right? Where we're not serving the needs of, of mm -hmm. women exclusively, but our approach is very sort of resonant with, with female investors, you know, nine, 10 women that walk through the door, they may close half. And that's fantastic, right? Like their growth is yeah. awesome. Did it come at the exclusion of others? Kinda, but their growth stellar, and and they can be they can deliver a fantastic experience because they're focused. And I think, you know, I'm not gonna name names. There's a lot of highly respected, fast growing wealth managers in the country that just stay really focused, and yeah. they they become popular and, and kind of famous because of that, at the mm -hmm. exclusion of certain things. And so it's a it's a tough threshold to step over. But really successful firms have done that. What do you and so? This is my opinion. I'd love to hear your thoughts. One of the reasons I think that firms maybe are still kind of stuck in this idea of being everything to everybody is because they have, you know, a standardized AUM only pricing model, right? And so they're still hanging all of their revenue generation on maybe something they're mediocre at. And they're looking at it saying, well, maybe I should outsource this to more of a robo platform or a quant shop or a third party asset manager. But if I do that, like, what am I actually doing now to generate value to command, you know, a 1% asset or management fee or something like this, right? Would you say that the fee structure in the business model industry also is, you know, kind of lending itself to that problem that you just articulated? Uh, totally. <laughs> so I think, um, but it's, again, I have empathy for this too, because, you know, on, on one respect, are you doing 10 times more for a client that has $10 million that went, no, you're not. But, but, and is it break points and you could kind of reduce the fee and kind of make yourself more competitive at the higher end. But you've got all these other clients that I don't care if you're charging 150 basis points at, at, at $200,000, you're losing money on that client. Like, what do you Correct. do with that? So, yeah. but the AUM model, it's so, it's so embedded in what we do. And to some extent it's embedded in how our clients think about our service. Cause I've got yeah. money. You, if it goes up, you get paid a little more. If it goes down, you get paid a little less. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a automatic report card associated with that, yeah. as opposed to, you know, what you what you want to charge me for planning. Well, um, my friends at Morgan Stanley, they don't charge for planning. Yeah, because yeah. they charge you like 175 basis points. You know, like yeah. that's a Correct. difficult conversation to have because they, a, yeah. a lot of times they don't see the basis points because it's embedded in a fund or a strategy. It just yeah. feels like more. Um, but uh, I think the world is certainly moving to more of a uh, more of a retained um, pay for a service and then mm -hmm. see that, but you're going to have to educate the populace of investors, which 
let's be honest, like the concept of a basis point isn't something that most people, most investors really yeah. understand. Um, even those that have bought homes don't necessarily understand mm -hmm. what a basis point is. And what is too much? And what is actually there? Is it, you know, is it addition to the fund fee? Sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's more. <laughs> like, well, and I think that you know we've we've been talking with advisors you know around the country and and some of the trainings that I do and, and saying, look, I I don't know that moving to say a monthly subscription like we do at LifeWorks or an annual retainer is any better necessarily than an AUM fee structure. However, the gap still is when clients aren't fully certain about all of the things that you're doing for what they're paying for, right? The industry right now kind of says, hey, we'll give away financial planning because it gets assets in the door. And then the clients are overwhelmingly saying in, in studies like, hey, the, the one thing I really want more of that I'm willing to pay for is like, help me with planning and strategy and taxes and, and guidance. Um, so that's an, it's an interesting thing because I think it goes back to your point about needing to have niches, right? Needing to be very clear about your value proposition and, and who you're going after and then how you're going to price it, right? Um, you know, and that's a tough thing because we, we run into this now where clients will say, why should I pay you a monthly subscription fee, right? Uh, you know, someone so doesn't charge for planning. And it's like, absolutely. Uh, we've decided one of our approaches is we are going to be profitable on a client relationship if they're just paying us a monthly subscription for planning because otherwise I might as well not charge for planning and give it away and try and just go the AUM fee only route, right? But it is a tough thing to know that there's going to be clients that walk in the door that say, I don't want to pay for planning. Oh, you guys charge for it. Okay, that's not for me. Um, but then the ones that are looking for a relationship where they have this clear, easy to understand fee structure for us, it's a you know something we've actually found a lot of traction, you know, conversationally around. Yeah, and I, I love that. I mean, um, I, sometimes I, I regret that I'm back, not back working for a wealth management firm. But um, the, the the conversation I would love to have with a client is saying. Um, look, if, if it's part of your AUM fee, but the person that's managing your portfolio really just gets paid on the assets, what's the likelihood mm -hmm. they're going to want to plan with you two years from now? You're not recurring, you're not paying them anymore. They just yeah. did it to get you yeah. the door um, versus paying me for the plan, which means that every quarter we're going to do something with this. And if they come mm -hmm. from a large wirehouse where clearly they use the planning as the hook and then they never touch the plan again, they're going to, that should resonate with them, right? Like, oh yeah, yeah. that's right. I did the plan like five years ago. Where's that sucker? nowhere mm -hmm. you know yeah i didn't pay for it but it was crappy and it didn't have anything to do yeah. in that relationship it didn't shovel in reporting they didn't have any they didn't ask me when i had a kid or when like there was a my linkedin profile said there was a you know in a new job and got paid more never once asked the question but the planful advisor that actually pay you know has a fee around the, the plan is going to be a, a critical part of the relationship yeah and we always tell you know i tell my team and, and tell our clients that we've just taken this approach you know there's a great book called um measure what matters um, by John Doerr, right? And we've just adopted that, right? If, if, we're not, if we're not measuring what matters, we're also not going to monetize those things, which means we're not going to stay on top of them. And so for us, at least, our way of kind of viewing the world is to say, well, we're, we're going to charge for, for planning and it's going to be a subscription so that we know that our work never ends, right? Uh, we're not delivering a plan and then we get to kind of you know, say, hey, we'll see you in three years for planning because we've got our three-year plan. You know, it's like that's that's not how it works. So, shifting gears just a little bit, one of the one of the questions that I wanted to toss out to you and get your perspective again, because consulting with with CTOs at firms all across the country, running your innovation board, like one of the one of the things that I wanted to ask you is, what are the things that you're seeing from your vantage point as a consultant to CTOs at successful firms? What do you believe the, the biggest, you know, say two, three, four challenges are that advisors and or firms are facing today and, and going forward? 
So um, a lot of challenges. Um, some of them are coming from the outside. Some of them are coming from inside. Um, you know, the external source challenges are going to be this this uh, horrible confluence for our industry of fee compression um, mm -hmm. and increased expectations. Um, which, I mean, lucky for a technology guy that that's usually the answer. Um, not always, but it usually is the answer of saying like, well, how can we charge less but do more? It's automation mm -hmm. typically. Um, but that's a big challenge too, is just taking legacy models of how we work with our clients and try to create some level of automation. Is it a CRM? Not always, but everybody seems to think CRMs are the solution to all their problems. And and then every time we walk in the door, it's usually more of a source of pain than, than a, a resolution of the pain. Mm -hmm. But it's those things. It's tracking client activities, um, streamlining the operations of the firm, getting a sh shorter distance between knowing you need to do something, a trade or opening an account distribution, uh, you know, putting money to work and then it being done and the communication is back. That's, that takes up a huge percentage of the operations mm. of a firm. Compressing that helps you to deliver more for less or manage more clients for the same amount of staff too. That's another way to do it. Um, the, uh, the, the internal struggles really come when, um, you know, we're trying to work with um, clients and in their investment portfolios and try to be hyper relevant to them. Um, you know, we've, I think we've, we've long had this model where there, there was almost like, you know, dentists and doctors and advisors, like there was this mystique behind what we, what we do and, and, and yeah. who we are, and no one ever questioned it. Um, I think, uh, especially when you think about the economics of our market, you know, long run up in the market, how, what did you do for your money? Like, how did you actually deliver value? Um, you know, what did we do to actually justify our, our fees and, and, um, and the, the sort of client management aspect of, of markets and expectations? Um, those are really hard. And a lot of firms that had to invest in technology still have legacy reporting systems that are um, are pretty out of date. They don't answer the mm -hmm. questions. Or more importantly, they don't really tell the story about what happened. Yeah. They just show data. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I, uh, I interviewed for a job. This is well before I was even a CTO at, at First Republic. But I interviewed for a job at a very well-known ultra net worth uh, multifamily office in, in the Bay Area. Um, and unfortunately, the person that ran it was from Goldman Sachs. But I basically ran this like... Well, at Goldman, they just dazzle people with like the numbers and just assume that I'm smarter than you. And it was a bad, it was a, I clearly didn't get the job. Um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, it did tell a story, which was that, that, that and I still believe this, that there are still firms, it's not Goldman, Goldman's fantastic. I'm, I love Goldman yeah, Sachs. I know what you but, mean. Um, that just like barf out data and complexity almost subconsciously with the hope that clients mm -hmm. are not gonna ask any questions because it's beyond them. Yeah. I think that, that that's changing. And clients want to be able to understand the story of their wealth more. Um, I think you can see it in terms of um, advisors that were at one time highly alpha generating stock picker, even manager of managers, moving to more of a planning first asset allocation yeah. and planning. It's about your life and your investments and kind of what you want to do, the why of your wealth kind of things. And the assets, underlying assets aren't as important. And so it, that's, that's actually moved even the alpha generating guys to say, hold on, I got to tell a more articulate story about yeah. why I'm here, what I'm doing. That's another internal challenge that we see a lot of firms mm. facing now. So one of the things um, I've, I've been a member of uh, ClientWise uh, and, and Ray Scalafani's, um, you know, the founder of that, I've, I've been really blessed to actually be in, in one of his study groups, um, kind of a guinea pig of sorts, I think, for him. Um, and one of the things that he challenged me with four or five years ago, and there still isn't technology out there to do it. So if somebody else is listening to this building software, like add this to your, your roadmap, um, we're going to try and build it too. But he said to me, how do you show a client in every meeting what the last 
three, four, five most important things were that you've done for him. Right? And so he challenged, he's got a great book called You've Been Framed, and one of the things in there um, for advisors that are listening to it, go read the book, it's absolutely worth it. But one of the questions is to go to your clients and, and ask this sequence of six questions, and one of them is, you know, what are the top three things that my, you know, me and my firm have done for you in the last 12 months, and then just see what they come up with. And he said the interesting thing is what they say will not be what you've been like, well, I did this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And so we realized there was this disconnect because you know, it's a natural human tendency for us to forget something like, oh, these guys did a Roth conversion and saved me $10,000 in taxes, right? That's nothing that's a warm and fuzzy, you know, clients carrying it with them, you know, into the future. But good advisors and good firms are doing that kind of work all the time. And then three months goes by, six months goes by, a year goes by, and everybody forgets about it. And there's not a good system for reminding. So to your point, I think about being able to communicate the value of all the things that you've done and maybe even that our work is in some ways doing thousands of little things with a high degree of precision and very like well executed over a long period of time, right? There's no, generally there's not one big like, you know, we just landed a, you know, a spaceship on the moon and everybody sees it and remembers it for the next 50 years. Like I don't, I don't think our industry has those kinds of, you know, things, right? Not for the average advisor like us. Yeah. And, uh, you're right. It doesn't exactly exist. There's a um, there's an one of our favorite areas of artificial intelligence. Just the buzzwords just have to just I said stop just slather them. Now I gotta say <laughs> artificial intelligence. But in this case, it's actually it's it's kind of not really artificial intelligence. It's more just um, a fancy computer. That's really hmm. it. But what it does is it takes um, it take uh, structured data. So holdings transactions, um, performance metrics, uh, planning data, anniversary data, publicly sourced information. And it writes a story, it actually tells the freaking story of what happened. Wow. Um, there's a few firms that are doing this right now in the industry, but um, I love that because I, you know, I can, I don't have to look at a table of data and try to spot like, well, you know, yeah, that was up 7%, but it's only 2% of my allocation. Is that good or bad? I don't know. What's the contribution? Oh, the contribution number's there. Yeah. But I remember, I don't remember what, I don't actually know what contribution means as an investor. Yeah. So yeah. I'm lost. Um, but it tells a story. It says like, hey, in the last, you know, uh, week, sometimes you could use these things for emails to clients on a weekly basis mm -hmm. or just put it on the app saying, last week, here's what we did for you. We rebalanced, we put money to work, we uh, handled a corporate action. Um, you know, we had a, uh, we ran a, two compliance checks to make sure you were good. We ingested like, you know, this much quarterly information from the funds. We made these decisions to stay. We're going to add these other to watch list. Like this is stuff that goes on in, in every wealth management portfolio. We never once think to talk to clients about doing it. Yeah. Why? Because we're like the architects of the giant building. We're going to we're going to build this huge building. And we're going to dig a super deep hole and we're going to, you know, put stuff in. But you know why they put the little portholes on the buildings that the building so people like can go look in the hole. They just people are just naturally curious about what's going yeah. on where they can't see it. And everybody right. looks in the darn hole, right? Hmm. you should, you know, people should start thinking about putting holes around their company just to show them stuff that, Hey, this is what's going hmm. on. It's not relevant. It's not performance. It's not contributing to the outcome, but it's stuff we're doing on a daily basis to make your life better. And you probably should know that, especially when it comes yeah. to charging a hundred basis points. I'd much rather see all the cool things my firm was doing for me than just see the bill every quarter. Right? Yeah. You know, that's a great point. I think we can sometimes get absorbed with trying to make it look really easy for the client, right? Like we've got everything figured out and we know what's going on and all of our technology is amazing. And maybe to your point, it, it would be a good thing to let the client see how much work our teams have to do and the struggles and 
you know, the long conversations we have about, you know, hey, how, how should we be investing our clients' money in this crazy market, right? Um, yeah, that's a really great point. Um, so as we kind of shift from some of the challenges, uh, you know, I mean, COVID and the, you know, this global pandemic, I think shifted, you know, expectations for both clients and firms. What are, what are some of the, the opportunities then that you see going forward for using, you know, Zoom or, or, you know, more, let's say immediate type of communication and connection technologies, right? Where the advisor is sitting in their office at their house and the client's on vacation somewhere and they can instantly maybe have a conversation about, can we buy this vacation home? Like, are you seeing that type of, you know, trend starting to emerge? And if so, what are, you know, what are some of the better platforms or some ideas around technologies to maybe bring that, you know, immediate communication kind of, to the, you know, to life for advisors? Uh, no question, Zoom, WebEx, uh, Google Hangouts, Google Meets, like, it significantly changed the access and the ease of mm -hmm. use of talking to our clients. Does it mean we talk to them mm -hmm. more? I don't, I haven't seen any numbers on that. My hypothesis is that maybe a little bit more, mm -hmm. um, but we've always known as an industry that more contact and more quality contact have led to higher net promoter scores. It's been around for like a decade since I've been tracking yeah. it a long time ago. Like the more we talk to our clients, the happier they are, happier clients refer more clients when you grow. Talking clients. How right? many firms do you actually run into in your consulting every year that actually do consistent NPS scores? Just curious. Well, we we do them for our clients, so it's actually part of our, okay. our offering as well. We do it. We do a client and a promoter. We actually do the benchmarking. So it, 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 think about it. Like if you really want to know what your mode is, you could figure it out yourself, or you could just ask the end clients why they're there, right? Um, and why they're there versus the someone else. <laughs> yeah, ask the clients. It's yeah. not that complicated. It doesn't cost a lot of money either. Um, yeah. And so. Uh, you know, but the, this this concept that we can we can jump on a video call and talk. Um, there, there's two aspects that that uh, when I think about, especially the digital side of, of this interaction, let's just call this video Zoom thing digital. Um, one, it it even if you can't talk to the person on camera, the ability to to grab a phone at two o'clock in the morning because I got a six and an eight year old kid and my wife's pregnant, and boy, we had we had just planned on two, you know, and now six years later we're gonna have a daughter you know, that I just found out. And like, now my mind's going like, oh my God, like I got to work longer. Mm -hmm. I got to put more money away for college. What does you it know, mean? We were going to move, but now we got to get a different house. Like all these things, like the, the amount of stress and unanswered questions in your brain is massive. Not just for that one, but for anything else that's going on in your life. The ability to, tr to, to translate that anxiety to someone else, to literally just give that anxiety to someone else at two o'clock in the morning is amazing. And that's one of those things like experiences that can significantly improve your level of like EQ and connectedness with your clients. Mm. Digital is great for that. Being able to go on an app and say, oh crap, you know, Doug, call me, at, call me when you get up, you know, we're going to have another kid, you know, mazel tov, but like we got to deal with this. Um, <laughs> the ability to translate is, is really valuable. Digital can help with that. It has to be designed mm. the right way. I don't mm -hmm. see a lot of people having like fantastic digital experiences that have that sort mm. of EQ at its corner, but it, it, that's when we, we were, we're excited about that evolving because we're starting to see more and more people get there. Um, but the video side gets me really excited because, you know, um, uh, I think Skype was the first sort of commonly available video technology we could all get. That's 2003. 18 years later, it's basically the same thing, right? And yeah. as, as cool as Zoom was and as, as much of a savior as this was for our clients during the last 12 months, it's basically the same thing. I mean, I can go, my, I can go and zoom and like put like, 
you know, a beard on and like a fancy hat yeah. and that's kind yeah. of cute. Yeah. But think about the other things that we're using technology for in this, in this, in this situation right now, where you and I are talking, um, if I was talking to my Alexa speaker or my, my, uh, my Siri on my phone, it'd be transcribing and doing natural mm -hmm. search query off that. Why don't we do that on zoom? Why doesn't yeah, zoom correct. have an ability to, to pull in market data based on our conversation or initiate a workflow? Like, Hey, uh, I said, open account. And all of a sudden the account opening paperwork pops up and my voice yeah. will begin to translate. Um, yeah. the reason why I know these things are possible is we are, uh, F2 is actually, uh, um, starting the conversation with a couple of the top. Uh, video conferencing services about this exact thing about actually yeah. prototyping these technologies they're all available you know yeah. facial recognition like i can pick up my phone and my bank account record and it knows it's me but when i'm on with my advisor i open up an account at jp morgan like last year and they had to take dun, my dun, video dun, camera dun, 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 dun. I, yeah. like i showed my video camera to the, me signing it that was that that was the docusign yeah. for jp morgan yeah. um you know we could do a lot better and i think that the agreed over the next 12 months, we'll get there. But that's that's got me pretty excited. Yeah, and that's a really interesting thing I've been asking around and, and talking with our CTO about the ability to do just that. Like this, this idea that if we can build a platform that allows advisors to run their practice and communicate with clients in real time anywhere in the world and to throw another buzzword out there, like, you know, natural language processing type of things, right? So you, you got to throw out artificial intelligence. I get to throw out natural language processing. All the people that actually do that work now just hate us for the poor analogies and descriptions. But I mean, this idea that, yeah, I can tell Alexa or Siri, hey, do this, this and this. In fact, my four year old can run our Facebook portal and check the weather and do a whole bunch of other things just with her cute little voice. And it's quite fun. And I think to myself, like if I could be in a conversation with a client and say, hey, put a reminder to do X, Y and Z and send this request to the person on my team, um, that would just free me up to spend more time doing this right um, instead of saying okay when I get off this call I need a 30 minute buffer or 45 minute buffer to go queue up a whole bunch of tasks and translate what I need done to other team members or things like this right I think the efficiency will go up which would give us just a lot more time to engage with people yeah we uh, there's a there's a concept of like return on investment in time so a lot mm. of our wealthiest, people in the, in the, in the country are also the most time poor, right? They don't have the time to deal with their wealth, but also things. Mm -hmm. So like their benchmark for the return on the investment that they put into a phone call or a visiting your website or signing your freaking documentation. Um, th those benchmarks, which were maybe fine five years ago, 10 years ago, um, Amazon, Alexa, Facebook, Uber, mm -hmm. their, the, the benchmark goes up every year for what people expect mm -hmm. to get out of their investment time. To some extent, like Netflix and Amazon, it knows me. It knows what I want to watch. I got thirty minutes, and scare them into some like right. But that that level of of uh, benchmark increase, I don't think a lot of advisory firms really understand that's going on. The clients' frustration will be building because your benchmark is steady, but their benchmark expectation is increasing. And and what mm -hmm. I like about video and incorporating natural language processing, uh, facial recognition for things like the task tracking things that that, that will be coming. Is that it, it? Is it takes that same amount of time, and we all get more done. The clients get more information. They didn't have to mm -hmm. send in a documentation. We actually completed the documentation just on our voice. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. You saved me like an hour. Fantastic. Yeah. You just like doubled your benchmark. Mm -hmm. um, so we we love those those opportunities. We're always trying to spot like who's coming to market first. Zoom is part owned by Salesforce, so mm. we're hopeful that Salesforce will, will get Zoom wired in. That'd be that'd be awesome for a lot of people. We've uh... We, we dropped our CRM a 
about a year ago and um, running just our own platform, which was a fun exchange. But so one more kind of shift gears here. You know, we covered some challenges. We just kind of jumped in and started talking about some opportunities. But what do you think? What do you think wealth management is going to look like for the financial advisor who's listening to this five years from now, ten years from now? What, what, what's there? What what's Doug's vision for what an advisor's day-to-day and, and role looks like jumping out into the future? Yeah, I think we we talk about, uh, we need another buzzword, um, mass <laughs> customization, right? Like we talk mm-hmm. about this thing, and but I think we're actually closer to the reality of that than people most people think. It's going to cost money, and it's going to take time to get right, but the ability in 2021 to be able to understand more about your client, um, to incorporate those needs. And I'm not, I mean, we can hit ESG, but there's even some other things like just general preferences and sort of mm-hmm. expectations and goals and not just like dollar goals, but cash flow goals you have in the future and to be able to incorporate that data back to the client saying, we got you covered. Like your anxiety level goes to the floor because yeah. you know, someone's watching you and yeah, the S and P's on a tear, but you know what? I don't need to be tracking the S&P. I'm going to retire in two years. What the hell do I need? You know, but my, I retire in two years goal is like, I'm crushing it. You know, I'm crushing yeah. that goal at like 4%. Um, so those abilities to customize the experience and, and deliver consistently um, customized information back to the, to the client, I think is going to win. I mean, it's mm-hmm. one in every other industry we can think about today in the commercial. It's from Starbucks to Amazon to, to you know Netflix and 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 um, and Hulu and stuff like it's it's winning. People people are gravitating towards things that that shortcut the finding and the understanding to something's predictive and 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 personalized. And I think that's going to come into our industry pretty significantly. And it doesn't just be for planning tools. It could be for you know alpha generating stock picker advisory firms can still do the exact same thing. Um, when the technology is starting to get there, I'm very encouraged by the number of. Um, really elegant direct indexing and fractional shareability. Even the big custodians are starting to get that. That's going to be a huge contributor to, to mass customization. Um, and they got to start to think about how you're going to report on it and how people are going to ingest that information. And I think that'll be a, the biggest hurdle because um, most advisor firms are full of folks that are really uh, industry experts, not human experts, not like design experts. And um, mm. There just aren't enough like good des- wealth management technology design firms that can kind of interpret that. And so that would be the biggest hurdle is people getting it right. The tech will be there. Um, the adoption may be slow. Yeah, so uh, that's a really great point. I'm going to stop here and, and pick at it a little bit. One of my favorite books is Essentialism by Greg McEwen. Um, I actually talked about this a uh, few podcasts back with the CEO of Apex, Bill Capuzzi, and, and he has a quote from Essentialism right on his LinkedIn profile. and essentially paraphrasing uh, what what the book says is instead of pursuing everything, focus on the right things. How how should a small startup RIA or maybe a, you know, a 20, 30 year old RIA that's well established and, and kind of has a lot of tradition and legacy to it, how should we be approaching the idea of focusing on the right technology, right? And I know I don't want you to give away your, all of your secret sauce with F2, um, but maybe just, just give us, a, give us a, a starting point for how to think about focusing on the right things instead of kind of, I still see an industry right now for myself as the leader of LifeWorks that, you know, I mean, we get bombarded with new technology every day, 
right? Um, so as we think about that definition you just gave of you know what the advisor role maybe looks like in five years or ten years, um, how do we start focusing on the right things? And, and where would you start if you were to just you know step into you know the average you know small to mid-sized RAA? Where do you start? Yeah, it, this is a great this is a great sort of thread because this brings together a lot of the threads we've talked about up till now, which is that that, that essentialism is about focusing on what matters, it's about tracking what matters and like making sure that you're dedicating time and attention to things that are really going to move it. Um, and the the sort of the enemy of essentialism is listening to all those squeaky wheels, right? So everything's going to sound broken when you walk into a firm. Everybody's going to have a perspective on why the mm -hmm. billing system's bad and why the accounting system's bad and performance reporting system's not good. Like it's coming out everywhere. And if you try to put mm -hmm. all those fires out at the same time, you're never going to get anywhere. Um, so, you know, in terms of where things ideally for a firm when they're focusing on it, they understand what's really critical and what's just noise. Um, mm -hmm. There's this great analogy, and I've seen it a couple of times in social media, but I think I've, it's been around for a generation of like when they flew the, the bombers home in World War II and they're like, look at all the holes, put, put uh, armor where all the holes are. And some smart engineer is like, no, no, no. If it got home with holes in it, it was fine. Like wherever there's no holes, put armor there because that's where the problem could be. And that for wealth management context is more mm. like, why did your last five clients leave you? Did you do an exit interview? Find out why. Maybe it wasn't had nothing to do with you. Maybe it did. Maybe it's maybe something they thought they were going to get when they came to the door. They didn't get it. Talk to the first, the last three clients that you won. Why did you pick me? Like, why me over someone else? What was it about us that mm. was so special and unique? When you start to figure out what that is, you start to really understand that that there are certain pieces of who you are that need to be great and need to be bolstered. And maybe you're not hearing anybody complain about them. But that's mm. probably where you should be spending most of your money. The last thing I'd say is just look at your tech spend, benchmark it. You know, we've got a couple of good industry benchmarks, typically like between thirty and $60,000 per advisor per year on advisor tech is about where we would want to see people uh, in terms of uh, uh, your uh, um, total revenues, your OPEX, about 15 to 20% of your OPEX should be spent on technology. That's just a general benchmark. Um, okay. And there's a couple of benchmarks that we have for our clients. but. Um, if you're going to spend that much money, make sure you're spending the most of that money on the things that are really driving your business forward. If, if you're winning on performance, get a dang good performance reporting tool. Spend some time on getting it digital, yeah. get the reports updated. If it's planning, don't spend money on the performance reporting tool, right? Like <laughs> why? Yeah. They're not here for the performance. They're here for the plan. Make it digital, you know, have performance that hangs to the plan. Um, if it's a relationship, maybe it's the CRM, you know, it's, if you know what's really important, to some extent, the tech technology decisions and where you spend money is almost an afterthought. And mm -hmm. I, I feel like bad about my own company because a lot of what we do is exactly this. You just walk people through what's important and how to focus on that thing. Mm -hmm. But I feel bad because like once you know it's important, the technology is not that complicated. It's pretty obvious mm -hmm. which ones you'd want to use and where you'd want to spend money. It's the getting to that spot that's the tough part. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. In fact, in some regards, uh, it just kind of reminds me of, you know, my coach telling me you always have to master the fundamentals and master the basics first. And whenever you are wondering where to go next, like go back to the basics and start there and things get clear. Another question for you. Um, if you were the CTO at LifeWorks or, you know, another, you know, let's say, yeah, let's say we we're going to use a, you know, kind of a younger, more startup RIA, right? Are you concerned or are you, um, nervous about say like Google, Apple, Amazon stepping into the wealth management space. We see them in the payment space now. We see, you know, 
you know, Google in the banking space. What, is, what does it potentially look like in terms of a competitive advantage for a firm that has you know, billion users, knows everything about everybody, has data on everything, that all of a sudden decides to hone in on that, you know, take some of that data and that knowledge and come into the wealth management space. Do you think that's something that we should be, that if you were the CTO of my firm and I asked you that question, like, that would be like, you'd be like, yeah, that, that's something we need to be thinking about, keeps us up at night, here's where that might go, or are you, you know, you know that's not going to have an impact on us. What are, your, what are your thoughts there in terms of one of the big, I'll call one of the big guys, right, Google, Amazon, Apple stepping into this. Yeah, the fangs, the, the, yeah, that know everything about everybody, right? So, I mean, I probably know more about what they're working on than most people than I live here in Silicon Valley and like, you yeah. know, the people that are working there. Um, I'm not worried about it. And, and there's <laughs> one main reason and then there's like a side reason. The, the side reason is they could do anything. Like they could, they could go anywhere with anything. And I think wealth management, the complexities of our industry um, are, will, if they're smart and they're not always smart. Um, Will, will prohibit it. But I think that the big thing, the, the big reason why I'm not worried about it is that we've seen in the last eight years, the, the, the very similar thing, which was small, nimble, great design firms, great education from the top universities, you know, a modicum of interest in, in intelligence and what the market has done, coming out with robo-advisor or like non, not like not you guys, you guys came to technology from doing it. Is a, mm -hmm. that's yeah. incredibly unique in, in our industry. Yeah. Most people come at it because I went to school and I read something and said FinTech was gonna take off and so I started a FinTech company and I did payments and then I switched to doing investments because what's different between a payment and an investment? I don't even know, so I'm just gonna do it, right? Like that level of naivete, I think certainly like eight years ago, I was a little bit scared, like, mm -hmm. holy crap, you know, is this, is this really gonna, this is gonna disintermediate our, our, our industry what I think we've seen, my interpretation of the last eight years was they ran headlong into why, you know, firms, I like software firms that are around for 20 years because they've been through all the hard stuff. They had the details right. And you yeah. can't fake the details, right? You can try yeah. to fake details. You can pull the wool over people's eyes for a little while. You can get like a young investor that doesn't really understand the complexities when they're first coming out of, out of school and investing. It's probably a really good place for them to go. But as soon as they get a trust and they get married and they got a taxable account, they got to roll something over. They got to worry about um, planning for their kids for for you know, for college. Like none of those solutions really work. Um, they need an advisor. They need a person that really understands that has seen thousands of different investors come through the the works and can manage that. And I don't think Google and Apple and Facebook are going to get that. I don't think they're going to be able to automate it. Um, not in not in at least a generation. I think. And and by the time we get to that spot they'll just be like the Google platform. It'll be the, mm -hmm. you know, we're like SS&C and, 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 and Black Diamond and, and Orion, you know, they'll be just running on Google, on Google software. And that'll be cool because mm -hmm. then you'll be able to yeah. ingest the data from the clients, be able to pull their LinkedIn profile in. Which would be amazing. And, yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, you see, you bought these, like, you bought like 25% of your purchase over the last 12 months are from these sectors. By the way, you know, you're invested in those companies too. Like, that's kind of cool, yeah. right? Or your ESG, I, you say you're green, but I can see your shopping history. It ain't so green, right? Yeah. Um, that level of data would be great. Yeah. I think that's what will happen. Well, and it's an interesting thing, and, and and maybe this is where the delineation needs to really be made between, you know, kind of self-trading apps like a Robinhood. Like maybe maybe it's the Google or the Amazon, you know, Apple or Amazon that could step into that space and say, we already have all of your data, and for us to facilitate transfers of payments and access to the market, maybe that's easy, but. 
the lived human experience uh, that an advisor's had of interacting with a thousand clients over time, being able to say, it's not only that I see the pattern, I also have had you know, a hundred of their clients that had this happen to them or that are going through this and we figured it out, right? That's gonna be really difficult to replicate with just a machine. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, interesting. I think they'll they'll rise to a level, same as the robo-advisors did, mm -hmm. and just won't go much further. Well, that's that's a, another interesting quick point as we're, we're wrapping up here. I mean, the robo's kind of exploded on the scene, and the idea was, you know, fee compression, no one's going to be able to keep up, everybody's going to have to go robo. And here we are, I don't know, what, 13, 15 years later since the first, you know, kind of robo stepped into the scene. And at least from an outsider's perspective looking at them, it seems to be that they've kind of all coalesced to about the same kind of picture of what their offering is, and they've all kind of stopped at about the same size. Do we think that they've kind of hit peak market adoption until they put advisors on their platform, or you know, what comes next for that? So we have clients that are, that are implementing uh, robo-advisor right now for the small accounts, right? Like, mm. yeah, for the small accounts, what a great solution, my brand, Schwab Intelligent Portfolios is a really good solution for that. Like, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't have to be everything to these people. I can give them my asset allocation, my models delivered in a really elegant digital format. They have a number to call, but I'm not spending every day rebalancing and tax optimizing and doing these crazy things for that client. I, I can just do it on the robo platform. Great. Mm -hmm. In fact, there may be some bigger clients who just want that. I'm offered to my big clients too, and they'll pay less. Sounds like a win-win. I think that's where you mm -hmm. sort of get that. They morph together and into a similar way, the fangs, when they do get into our industry, it, of course, it will happen at some point. Um, similarly, right, it'll just become a, uh, an ecosystem. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Last last question for you. And then I know I got to let you go because my my hour with you is almost up. Um, two part question. OK, if you were to give one piece of advice or share one kind of like unified message for young next gen growth-oriented advisors, what would it be? Young growth-oriented advisors coming into the market. I think um, I think it would be to maximize on the human side of our industry. Um, I think there's a portion of the, you know, go get your uh, CFP, not a CFA. I'm just gonna like uh, piss off a lot of my friends here, but like, <laughs> I think there's just a part of that that is going to be more valuable in the future. Mm -hmm. I think you think about the, the pools of all the younger advisors that are coming in where firms are not getting as many qualified um, business school grads. And frankly, with the technology and, 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 and capabilities of these firms, do you really need someone that understands, you know, Macaulay duration and can, can calculate an IRR in the back of a napkin? Maybe not. Maybe you want someone mm -hmm. that's actually great at talking to grandma and mom and the daughter about the legacy of the family. And, and like, mm -hmm. that's a, probably a more valuable thing to go into. And so focusing on the EQ side um, would be probably one, one piece of advice. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, so the second part of the question is, what advice would you give to firms or to the leaders of firms who are trying to build teams and win clients in this new you know, digital environment? Yeah, I think um, go for diverse candidates. Um, mm. there's, you know, I come from, uh, you know, way back in the day, Wachovia before it was even Wells Fargo and the focus on getting diversity points around your, around your table internally, um, has, has helped tremendously. I've seen it in action, right. Mm. Of, of different ages and genders and racial backgrounds and like socioeconomic backgrounds coming together produces phenomenal results of the firm. Like 
the, the amount of quality insight and and sort of enterprise EQ that you can bring to, to your firm and your clients is amazing. Um, and that's unfortunate, like, uh, you know, to two of us, like not a lot of diversity in our industry right now. So I think there's a huge opportunity yeah. for firms to, to double down, you know, finding voices and finding um, uh, perspectives that are not cut from the exact same cloth can mm-hmm. be difficult. You know, it's harder to find people that, that, that um, maybe we would say like qualify for a certain level of, of act. It may be a matter of, of cultivating that talent internally, um, mm. huge in our industry and super, super needed. Um, I think that's one. I think the other one would be just um, on the technical side. And it's a thing that everybody overlooks is your data. Because going back to like the Amazon Fang thing, um, every piece of what we're going to want to do in the future is going to require us to have immediate access to our client data to go do something. And a lot of firms today are still app to app. Like you, you, you said the example of like starting out and having like 10 different cool, shiny objects, yeah. none of it talked together. It was its own problem. When we see firms bringing their data together and owning it, and I don't mean the CRM, I mean like you should be able to, you should be able to fire your CRM in 12 months if you want to. Like that's the- Yes, agreed. Salesforce is fantastic, but I mean, we don't have everybody, not all of our clients are happy with it. Um, and you wanna be able to push any vendor off in favor of some other vendor and, and almost buy yourself future flexibility of being able to swap tools yeah. in. You got to have control of your data. That's just going to be more and more important as the the little buzzword AI, machine learning, natural language processing, like all that requires a really good sense of your own data. And, and that's a piece that I would say from a technical side, hmm. most firms are not doing, they ought to be doing now. That is, uh, that is maybe the most important piece of advice that I have actually heard as the owner of a firm in a long time. And I think about friends and colleagues of mine that, and, and us too, to some extent, before we started building our own technology, that we were captive and kind of beholden to where our data was. One, because the thought of the cost of conversion, the time, it's not clean, somebody has to get it all, you know. And and we ended up, you know, kind of settling for maybe a less than optimal tech stack or, or management of it. And I think your, your point, which I wanna make sure I reiterate so everyone hears this is, by owning your own data, you actually are talking about having a, a centralized database that's yours, not an external third party that you could decide to connect to a CRM or connect to a planning software or connect to an Orion Black Diamond or something like this. But then should you need to pivot with your firm, your data is still your data, right? And you could go to the next spot. I, I mean, I think that sounds like a tough job, but that might be, that might be the best advice I've heard uh, for firms. Um, and I, I don't say that lightly. I, uh, I, I think this is a really, really interesting point. And you're the first person that I've heard actually say, own your own data. Um, so it's a hard sell because y- y- you say like, what am I going to get out of it? Uh, nothing for a while, like five years, totally a lot. But in the first 12 months, yeah, at the, in lieu of other shiny objects, that's always the difficult yeah. sell. Not a lot. You're buying yourself. You're basically buying like an option to be really innovative in the future. And, and you could look around the, the neighborhood and see, you know, nine out of the 10 firms around you are not doing that. That's a really good bet for your own like viability long term. Yeah, that is awesome advice, and I know uh, our time is up, and so I've, I'll leave it there. Doug, thank you for taking the time out of your uh, hectic schedule to share some insights from a CTO's perspective on our industry. I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, hopefully, we get to have another one here soon. Uh, for those of you guys watching the video, listening to the podcast, if you'd like to learn more about Doug and his company F2 Strategy, you can go to F2 Strategy. 
www.dougmcdonald.com. Uh, really interesting website, and you can also find Doug on LinkedIn and also Twitter as well. I believe the Twitter handle is Doug O. Fritz, something like that. Yeah, and then and then just F2 Strategy, yeah. F2 Strategy. You, you guys are really difficult to find. F2 Strategy, bam, website. Well, I wish you uh, success, uh, safety, and health for your family. Thank you for sharing your insights with us. Um, I know I appreciated it and uh, look forward to having you back on the Future of Advice series sometime soon.